The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that all, for all that you have provided for us, for all that we have in Jesus Christ, all the tremendous uh, assets that we have, the indwelling of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, the fact that we have a completed canon of Scripture which has been preserved for us down through the ages. Scripture that is inerrant, infallible, and that is absolute truth that we can ground our lives upon. Now, Father, as we study our topic this evening in Hebrews and continue to be challenged with the, the importance and necessity of pressing forward in the Christian life, we pray that we would be able to put aside the distractions of the details of life and focus on the eternal realities of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last night, we, or last week, we continued our study in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. In Hebrews 6, 9, we read, But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. As we look at this these set of four verses in just sort of a bird's eye view, we notice that the direction that the author's thought is moving is in the direction of talking about inheritance. And in verse 12, the focus is on imitating those who through faith and endurance, they're literally not patience. Patience is macrothemia or long on anger literally or just, just that, that concept of being patient and waiting. This is the idea of endurance, which is a different concept. It's related, but endurance is a different concept. Uh, staying under the pressure, staying in the adversity, using the uh, problem-solving devices to to implement all of God's uh, assets that He's given us, all of our spiritual assets, with a goal towards inheriting the promises. So we look at verse 12, and it's moving towards inheritance, something future. You look at verse 11 in the first part, verse 11 and verse 12 are one sentence in the original. And in the first part of the sentence, the writer expresses his desire. We desire that each one of you show the same, same diligence to a particular end. There is a goal, there is a purpose, there is a function there, and that is the assurance of hope until the end. So again, it is a forward-looking uh, proposition there. It's looking forward to what is going to come the ultimate fulfillment in in the Christian life. Now, as we come to that first verse, I pointed out last time that he is stating that we can have confidence that despite failure, 
God's grace always provides recovery that despite failure, whatever happens, whatever we do, however complacent we become in the Christian life, if we become uh, distracted with the details of life for a year, two years, five years, ten years, fifteen, twenty, thirty years, there's as long as we're alive, God still has a plan for our life. And the writer starts off stating this in very strong terms in verse 9. But contrast, contrast to the fact that in the previous verses, he has really reamed them out. He has given them a, um, a, a verbal rebuke and reproof because of their complacency. He said that, They've gotten to the point that they needed milk and not solid food, that they have become dull or sluggish in hearing back in verse 11, that they needed to go back and just eat uh, spiritual applesauce on baby food because they just had become so complacent in their spiritual life they'd actually regressed. And then there's this extremely serious, almost threatening warning that... If they continue this way, it will, in human terms, almost be impossible to reverse course unless God permits. Verse 3 emphasizes grace. God permits. God provides the means to recover. The trouble is people can get so uh, reversed in their spiritual life and end up living, thinking, acting just like an unbeliever, and it, it just becomes like concrete on their soul. And it does become virtually impossible to recover because of uh, just the all the whole mechanics of carnality. But he's confident of them that they haven't uh, gone that far, that there is potential, there is grace, and they can recover. And he addresses them here with a term of endearment, agapetos, which is translated beloved. It comes from the verb agapao, which is one of the two verbs used for love in the uh, in the New Testament, and it is a word that is always used of an audience that is composed of believers. These are not unbelievers, which is the view that a lot of Arminians have about this passage. Arminian theology is a theology that rejects eternal security, and that takes us back to a t- just a uh, very lengthy ongoing debate that has occurred down through the centuries between people on the one hand who stress and overstress the sovereign control of God and on the other extreme you have those who stress and overstress the individual responsibility and freedom of man and when you start pushing either of these positions to their ultimate conclusion you end up and some tremendous heresy. For example, on the Arminian side, we usually refer to it today uh, by the term Arminianism. It comes from the uh, founder of Dutch Reformed theologian who began to modify and change his views on Calvinism. His name was James Arminius, or Jacob Arminius. And he didn't hold to a lot of the things that his followers uh, hold to today. But uh, that, that, that whole debate took place in the early 1600s. And, but it really goes back even further, back to the uh, 4th century A.D. There was a debate between Augustine or Augustine, depending on whether you're Catholic or Protestant, how you pronounce that. Augustine, who was the Bishop of Hippo in North Africa, and a British monk by the name of Pelagius. And Pelagius held that every human being is born in the same state that Adam was born in. Totally free. Not, no, no corruption from sin whatsoever. So technic, no inherited uh, no Adam's sin, no Adam's original sin being imputed to them. They were therefore totally free to choose uh, righteousness and could indeed do so. Well, to, the other extreme is... Uh, hyper-Calvinism and high-Calvinism where you have uh, limited atonement, Christ died only for the elect, and a hyper-Calvinism that no one, uh, you don't even have to evangelize. And the hyper-Calvinist position was most clearly articulated by a group of 
independent Baptist pastors in the late 17 uh, in the late 1700s, uh, when um, missionary came back from India, his name escapes me right now. When missionary came back from India, what was his name? It's the father of modern missions, William Carey. When William Carey came back from India, he wanted to challenge the British to send missionaries. And the, after he gave his report to a group of pastors, one highly respected independent Baptist pastor back in, in England at that time, the independent Baptists were all hyper-Calvinists, stood up and said, young man, that's all fine and good, but if God intended them to be saved, he would do it without your help or mine. And that was their position, that God directly saved people, not indirectly through the means of individuals. Now, today we get into different manifestations of this whole debate. And one of those manifestations is the lordship debate versus a what has come to be called free grace gospel. Free grace is almost a, a, a redundancy, but we've the, the term free was added because everybody talks about grace. Roman Catholics talk about grace and uh, legalists talk about grace and all kinds of people talk about grace and they don't have any idea what it means. So the term free was added in that uh, debate, current debate today in order to reinforce the idea that there are no strings attached to grace. It is a free gift. People still have trouble understanding a free free gift. Back when I was pastoring in a church where we had a lot of kids years ago, I used to do uh, children's sermons about once a month. And we'd have all the little kids come down and I'd do a little object lesson. And I used to pull out, uh, due to inflation now, I'd probably pull out a $5 bill. And I'd say, who wants his $5 bill? And these kids would, finally some kids say, I'll take it. I'd give it to him. Fine, it's yours. And they just couldn't believe it. And, of course, that's the whole issue with the offer of the gospel of salvation is it is a free gift, no strings attached. And so there has developed a debate in the last 20 or 30 years that has really focused on these issues. And lordship salvation really comes out of that fifth P in the acronym TULIP related to Calvinism, that the the uh, T stands for total, in a, in a uh, high Calvinist sense, the T stands for total inability as opposed to total depravity. Total inability means man can't do anything at all and doesn't respond at all even to common grace. Uh, U stands for unconditional election. L stands for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, and P for the perseverance of the saints. And in a high Calvinist lordship view, the P means that if you are truly regenerate, then you will not commit certain sins, fall away permanently or for a lengthy period of time, or have any kind of extreme carnality uh, in your life. And the real test of knowing that you are truly saved and in the faith and regenerate is that you don't turn your back on Christ or you don't commit certain sins. In fact, there is one well-known Calvinist uh, Bible teacher. He's on the radio a lot. He's on the radio here in Houston, and he's a five-point Calvinist, and he has stated that if you are committing sins and you die while you are committing those sins, then you were never saved. You were not part of the elect. You, it's not that you lose your salvation. You just never had it. Because if you were truly regenerate, then you wouldn't have been doing that. And the example that he uses is that if you were, uh, let, let's say, if you, you were traveling somewhere a lengthy distance, on the Sabbath, because remember under the Mosaic Law, see they have problems with the Mosaic Law too. If you were traveling a long distance, let's say you were flying from here to New York on, a, on, a, on the Sabbath, then and the plane went down and you died, then you weren't saved. And you can't know that something like that won't happen until you die. So there's no assurance of salvation. There's no certainty 
of salvation. And we ended up last time talking about the fact that there are many people today who lack confidence, lack certainty, because this, this, this Hebrew, or Greek word rather, that's used here, patho, is a word that indicates absolute certainty. And we live in an era today where people aren't certain. They're not sure about anything. Intellectuals for the last 100, 150 years, or we could call them pseudo-intellectuals, uh, deny the certainty of knowledge because they don't see they don't have an omniscient God who can speak to them, so they can't know anything for sure. But we can know things for sure. And I pointed out last time that this word is used in Romans eight twenty eight and twenty nine. For I am confident, I am certain uh, that nothing can separate us. I am persuaded, confident, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so this word patho indicates a strong level of confidence or assurance. Well, that whole thing comes into, I'm going to try to use this other thing back here, Bruce. We haven't done this yet. Is it even on? No, it's not on. Is it on? I, may, I switched that over. This, the lights are on, but nobody's home. Okay, well... Bruce is fixing that. I'll go on. We have this whole issue of assurance of salvation. And how much do you have to understand about assurance of salvation? There we go. Okay. How much do you have to understand about assurance of salvation and about eternal security in order to be saved? And some of you don't know this, but in recent years a debate has developed within the free grace camp. So I'm going to try to chart this out. Over here we've had this battle between lordship and over here you have free grace. Now the problem with lordship is they add something to faith alone in Christ alone. And so they would, they, would, they would say, in fact, some of them will come right out and say, yes, we believe that it's faith alone in Christ. But it's not alone because they're going to bring works into the back door. See, not the front door. Front door is like a, a, a legalistic Baptist who says you have to be baptized and you can't smoke, drink, you know, smoke or drink or chew or go with girls that do or dance or any of those things. So it's up front or Church of Christ. You have to believe and be baptized in order to be saved. That's front door. This is back door. You have to believe in Christ. And if it's real faith, it will bring about certain necessary consequent works and so it's not until you see the evidence of that genuine faith that you can be sure that you're saved and you may not know until you die that you haven't turned your back uh, turned your back on Christ so it's a it's a backdoor works here it's it's unstated it's it's this is insidious so they are actually adding to the gospel. So we'll put a plus sign here, and they're adding to the gospel. So they're truly teaching a different kind of gospel. Galatians chapter 1, where Paul says twice, let them be accursed if they teach another gospel. And there the Greek word is heteros, meaning another of a different kind. So it's adding something to the gospel. In the free grace camp, We've had another insidious development take place. So you have to be aware. I was talking with some friends at um, uh, both at pre-trib and at ETS. And it seems like in the last 30 years, there's a thousand different and more and different movements and X-acts and spasms in the evangelical church than there were 30 years ago when, uh, when we were in seminary. When Free Grace started off, with a wonderful statement. I don't know who came up with it, but their motto was faith alone in Christ alone. Faith alone. No works associated with it. All you have to do to have salvation is to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. It's not faith plus baptism, faith plus any kind of ritual, faith plus commitment, 
faith plus inviting Jesus into your heart, walking an aisle, repenting, none of those things. And over the last 20, 25 years, some of the leaders in the free grace movement have done some fabulous work emphasizing uh, the importance of grace alone in, I mean, faith alone in Christ alone. No works. It's, you're not going to buy into this false statement that you often hear. Some of you may have heard this: that the faith, while well, the faith that saves, while, while we're saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. Let me say that again: while we're saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. Anybody ever hear that? See what that is saying is that. That's that subtle backdoor of works again. While we're saved by faith alone, if it's real saving faith, genuine saving faith, then it's going to be accompanied with works. It's never alone. Now, what has happened in recent years, and if you go back and you read in some of the literature, this has always been there. But see, a lot of us were so focused on dealing with the lordship issue, that we didn't spot that there was something subtle going on in the background in a lot of the free grace writings that kind of has snuck up on us and bit us hard. And that is that faith alone in Christ alone isn't good enough. You have to have faith alone in Christ alone with an understanding that you're getting eternal life. Eternal is the key word there because what they're loading, just like the faith alone in Christ alone crowd, I mean the faith alone in Christ crowd, the Lordship crowd, front loads or sneaks works into that through the back door. What happens here is they're loading up the word eternal with some concept that it can't be lost. So there's, there's this emphasis that there's, there's something there, uh, some sense of eternal security or assurance of salvation, no matter how nebulous or I- implicit it may be. You, if it's not there, you really didn't get saved. And so this has created a lot of, a lot of problems in certain circles, and it's created, it's become very divisive because you see the, the, the crowd that is now teaching this, I would say, have added, just like the faith alone plus Christ crowd, I brought gospel there, that was wrong, added uh, evidential works, this crowd is adding eternal life to the equation. And they, they do it in kind of a subtle, backdoor manner. And the result is that if you believe in faith alone in Christ alone, and you don't bring in the sense that you're accepting Christ for the result, which is eternal life, then you have an insufficient gospel. You're not giving people enough information. And so this has... Um, Created a problem in our own back door with Schaefer Seminary because one of the faculty members, um, one of the faculty members was emphasizing this, and we've had to deal with that uh, a lot this last year. And those are long, long processes to try to try to deal with any kind of subtle error that creeps in, and we have to keep the gospel pure. But what they are doing is adding to the gospel the notion of eternal life. It's not enough to believe in Jesus for justification. If I trust in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, I don't have eternal life. I didn't mention it, so I'm not going to get saved. If I just believe in Jesus for justification with no mention of eternal life, then I'm not going to get saved. See, I believe that God in His omniscience is so great that He knows what I'm trusting in in my thinking for salvation. And even if I don't say it the right way, even if I pray a silly prayer like inviting Jesus into my heart, that's not biblically correct. But if in my thinking, 
I'm trusting in Christ alone for salvation, God's going to save me. He doesn't, he doesn't come down and say, you've got to be a theologian with a Ph.D. in Greek and Hebrew and say the right words in the right order in order to get saved. What's important is that in your thinking, in your volition, you are trusting in Christ alone. You are recognizing that He is the only way to salvation. And so you don't have to front load the gospel with assurance of salvation. In fact, we were talking about this as a result of this, another organization, the multiplication of theological organizations goes without end. That's a paraphrase of Solomon in Ecclesiastes who says to the making of books there is no end. Um, I was talking with Fred Librand, who's pastor of Northeastern Bible Church in San Antonio and is, I don't know what his title is, a director, executive director of Free Grace Alliance. We were talking about this last week and then a, uh, an older pastor, I respect him because of what he's done and a lot of things and he's a great guy, nice guy and he is the one guy who comes to the pre-trib group every every year and he is a pastor of an Assembly of God church in Charlotte, North Carolina. His name's Joe Chambers. And Joe will tell you right off the bat that he is a classic Pentecostal and that he does not believe in eternal security. But he, he, he believes Christ died for his sin. So according to this view, he's not saved because he doesn't understand eternal security. And if you go in the, in the mission field and you go into Eastern Europe, 90% of the Christians in the former Soviet Union were never taught eternal security. They didn't believe it. There's Arminian as they can be. You can lose your salvation. So that means, well, none of those people who trusted Christ are ever going to go to heaven because they didn't understand eternal security. I mean, this is just the most absurd thing in the world, and it's something that we have to be aware of and so that we can, uh, can fight it. Now, there's no sense of any of this in Hebrews. He, the writer of Hebrews is encouraging them that even though they have failed miserably, it doesn't mean that they need to reexamine themselves to see if they're in the faith. They know that they are saved because they've trusted in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the promised Savior from the, from the Old Testament. And so because of that, they're, they're saved, and he's confident that God's grace can solve their problems of carnality, and they can recover. So he says, Beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Now the question here becomes, what's the relationship, or what is the significance of these better things? Better than what? Better things have a future orientation. We are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. The, th- the better things are things that accompany salvation. Now, we should, here's a corrected translation of the verse. We hit this last time. But, beloved, concerning you, we're concerned, we are convinced of better things that are related to your salvation. So the better things are related to their soteria. And we ran into that word back in the first chapter of Hebrews, in Hebrews 1.14, We ran into it again in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, where the writer makes a statement, how shall we escape such a great salvation? And in those passages, I said, the writer's focus is not on being saved from the penalty of sin today, but the focus is future, being realizing the full salvation, including uh, future rewards and inheritance. And that fits the thrust of, of this passage, these verses in verse 9 and 10. So he says, We're convinced of better things that are related to your destiny, that salvation destiny that God has for every single believer in the realization of his future position and rewards and as a king and priest in the coming kingdom. So this brings in to, to our discussion the whole issue of rewards. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ 
so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. Now, I want you to pay attention to this word here. The word that's translated deeds is a word we're going to study in a minute. It's the Greek word ergon, and it means works. And I pointed out last time as we wrapped up that Christians always have a problem with works because we're saved by grace and not by works. So works are bad, but are they always bad? No, they're not always bad. When you're fighting a battle against people who are constantly emphasizing works, it's real easy to think that works are always bad. But the word ergon, as we'll see, is a neutral word. See, right here we're going to be recompensed. That's a positive word. It's meaning we're going to receive rewards for works. That's not talking about salvation. You're saved by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So this is talking about production that occurs after salvation. So there will be recompense for works in the body according to what he has done. And literally there is the Greek word proso, meaning what he has practiced, whether good or bad. So reference to the Bema seat, the judgment seat. And this is a very well-known site in Corinth the site of the Bema seat where the magistrate would sit and hear cases and make decisions. And in the background you see the Acre Corinth, which is the high point in Corinth where they had the, uh, ruins, of, the ruins of the temple up on, up on top. So it's this raised or elevated seat where the magistrate or tribunal would sit and make decisions. But I don't really think that Paul is thinking about the judicial Bema seat as much as He's thinking about the athletic one. And this is a picture of the, uh, of the uh, stadium at Delphi, where they had the famous Oracle of Delphi. And just located right here, you can barely see it, in the middle of the stadium, there's a, some different looking seats. And these were, this was the Bema seat at the stadium at Delphi where the judges would sit and judge the athletes. And remember 1 Corinthians 9, Paul uses the running of a race as a metaphor for, for receiving rewards. He runs well, receives rewards. He doesn't can become disqualified. And so the judges, the athletic judges, would sit on a bema seat also. So I think that's probably the metaphor for the judgment seat of Christ more than the, the judicial. Not that it doesn't have a judicial impact, but remember... Justification is resolved at the cross. This has to do with rewards and awards for uh, excellence in the Christian life. Well, the context of 2 Corinthians 5 is the walk of the Christian life. Therefore, in verse 6 we read, Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we what? We walk by faith and not by sight. And then it's the next verse that talks about the fact that our walk is going to be evaluated. It's this walk by faith that is so important for us to understand. That is the Christian life. How do we walk by faith in the Christian life rather than on the basis of empiricism? Verse 8 reads, For we are be of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. So that should be our motivation, is we want to please the Lord. Now, let's go back to our text. The background for all this discussion on rewards is the Bema Seat of Christ. Now, verse 10. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Now let's let's put that together with with uh, with verse 9. Verse 9 he says we're confident of better things concerning you. How can he be confident? Well he's going to give you an explanation. That's that first word for. In the Greek it's the Greek word gar indicating okay I've just made a statement now I'm going to explain why I can make that statement. And the explanation is based on the character of God. It's based on the fact that God is, and then we have a double negative, God is not unjust. So in English, two negatives cancel out and make it a positive. So, but, he, but by using the negative, he really strengthens the 
the, the statement. He's saying God is righteous and just. He's emphasizing that for his hearers. It's on the basis of God's absolute perfect justice that we know that he's not going to forget whatever it is that we have done positive in terms of our walk by the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, producing divine good, that that divine good that that we do in the past, even if later on we fail miserably and go into carnality, that divine good still is still divine good. And it's still ours. It's not taken away from us. God is not unjust to forget our work and labor of love. And that's where we get into this word again, work. But now it's compounded with a synonym, kapos, meaning labor. It's not just doing something in terms of work. It is laborious. It is putting forth a a significant effort. And it's qualified, of course, by the word love. So we have work and labor there. And then at the end, he brings in twice the idea of service with the word ministered in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. They have been uh, ministering in the past and they're still doing that. So let's break this down. We look at the essence of God. God is sovereign. He's righteousness and justice. This makes up the cornerstone of His integrity. Righteousness is the standard of His, his character and justice is the ap- application of that standard. He's love. That is the expression of that standard toward mankind so that these are not contradictory to one another at all. God is omniscient, so he knows all the facts, all the data, all the factors. Nothing escapes his attention. He's omnipresent, so he's present to all of his creation all the time. He's omnipotent, so he's able to do that which he intends to do. He is absolute truth. That's the fourth element in his in his uh, integrity. Righteousness and justice, the psalmist says, are the foundation of your throne and mercy and truth go out from it. That's the core bedrock of God's integrity, and he never changes. That's another element that's closely related to righteousness and justice, his faithfulness, that he never changes. He is always faithful uh, to his word. So as we look at these concepts, and that slide in there twice, uh, we have to start with God. That's, that's his argumentation. As he's thinking about how to encourage them, he takes them to, the, to God himself, to God's essence. He doesn't start off with some sort of abstract principle. He doesn't start off by encouraging them from something uh, in their day-to-day experience. He starts off by saying, let's go back to the absolute character of God. God is not unjust. So the starting point for all thought has to be God. Whatever it is, whatever you do in life, if you want to sit down and think about why you do what you do, you need to push it back and push it back and push it back until you come to God. God provides that foundation. If you're involved in any kind of work whatsoever, ultimately it goes back to God. He's the original craftsman, the original worker, the original creator. God thinks in terms of numbers and formula and mathematics. God thinks in terms of language. Language isn't temporal. Language is eternal. God always thought. He always communicated. Jesus Christ is the eternal logos, which means word. So language isn't something that God created. Language is something that God always had. Language, implicit in language, is logic. That's why not only does logos mean word, but logos also is the root for our English word logic. Because language to communicate has to be inherently logical. So all thought has to start with God. Second point, the only way we can know anything substantive about God is through revelation. You can't just... Look inside yourself. I mean, some people do. They go out and they chew on a peyote button or they smoke dope or they go out in the hills or sit on a pillar or walk on a bed of nails or whatever to try to uh, generate some sort of of, uh, religious experience so they can get some uh, insight about God. 
But the only way we can know anything for sure about God is if he reveals himself to us. So we have to go back to the basic doctrine of bibliology and revelation. And there are two categories of revelation which we've studied in the past. There's general revelation and there is special revelation. General revelation and special revelation. These are much better terms then uh, some people refer to general revelation as natural revelation because it's through nature, but that's not a good term at all. It has too many negative nuances. It's general revelation. Now, what is general revelation? General revelation is, first of all, nonverbal. It's nonverbal, it's nonspecific, and nondirective. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19.1. Romans chapter 1 talks about the fact that that we see God's attributes, His invisible attributes are displayed through the creation. We see His power, and we and it's enough to convict man of the truth and be uh, of such that he has inescapable responsibility in in um, uh, responding to that revelation that he's held accountable for. But it doesn't tell you anything more. You can't look at the stars and find out what's right and what's wrong. It includes God, man, and nature. Nonverbal revelation deals with God, it deals with man, and it deals with nature. It is. It must be interpreted, though, by means, there's a typo there, it must be interpreted by means of special, special revelation. Now, what do I mean by that? That general revelation has to be interpreted by means of special revelation. Well, if you go to the psalmist, the psalm, I mean the, the, the writer of Proverbs, the writer of Proverbs is always going to nature to draw certain analogies. And one of the analogies he goes to for uh, teaching industriousness and hard work and saving for the future is the ant. Now, I don't know how many of y'all had those crazy little ant colony things when you were kids. I didn't, but some people enjoyed that. And you can observe a lot of things about the ant colony social structure just by observing them. And one of the things that the writer of Proverbs observes is that they are very industrious. All day, in season, out of season, they work hard and they, uh, and they are constantly storing things for the future. So he goes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He goes to that one aspect of the ant's social structure and he utilizes that as an analogy to encourage people to work hard, to be industrious, and to save for the future. But he does it because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's told what he can legitimately use and tie in as an analogy. But there's a lot of things about ant social structure that you wouldn't want to use. I mean, you got one queen and a whole lot of guys. I mean, you just don't want to take that and, and bring that over into... Uh, application to marriage. So you have to have a framework for discerning how you interpret uh, general revelation. So special revelation is verbal and it's specific and it gives us the ability to interpret general revelation. But what we do know is the scripture is clear that we can know enough from special revelation to where man is without excuse in terms of the knowledge of God. Now, Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen. You ever see something invisible? Sure you did. When you became God conscious. And from the world around you, you clearly saw the invisible attributes of God. You understood the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, special revelation. There's two types of special revelation. There's recorded and there's non-recorded special revelation. In other words, there's canonical and non-canonical revelation. Revelation by non-canonical, I mean that there was information that God revealed to Jeremiah 
and to Ezekiel and to Daniel and even further back to David and to Abraham that was not intended to be inscripturated and preserved through the centuries. But nevertheless, because it came from God, it was just as inerrant, infallible, and true as if it were inscripturated. In other words, revelation doesn't have to be inscripturated for it to be infallible and inerrant. So there are two types of special revelation, that which is recorded and that which is not recorded. Special revelation covers the same parameters as general revelation. It talks about God, it talks about man, and it talks about nature. But special revelation is communicated propositionally. Now, what do I mean by that? See, we lose these terms. Nobody ever... Nobody today talks this way. A proposition in logic is a statement that can be falsified or or verified. That's what a proposition is. A question is not a proposition. Is it going to rain tomorrow? See, you can't prove that one way or the other. It's going to rain tomorrow. Now, see, that's a proposition. You can prove it. It either is going to rain tomorrow or it's not going to rain tomorrow. Uh, Go to the store. See, that's a command. That's not a proposition. Can you prove it or not prove, disprove it? No, you can't. You can, but propositions make, a proposition makes a statement about the nature of reality. And another word for that is truth. So the Bible communicates propositionally. It's not there to, to uh, generate emotions in you. It's not there to give you a big, warm fuzzy so you can go to an emergent church and sit around in a sofa and have a big group hug and I'll go home and say, wasn't it good to have been at church today? Which is where things are headed. So in special revelation, what we have is that God has revealed to us who he is. Not exhaustively, because he's infinite. You can never know God exhaustively. Ten billion years from now, when we've been in heaven for a billion years... We're still going to be learning things about God because he is infinite and we will never be infinite. And so our knowledge about God is never going to be exhaustive, but it will be true. Now, some people have a hard time wrapping their, their mind around that. We can, have an exhaust, we can have a true knowledge of God, but we don't know everything there is to know about God. Now, the problem with autonomous, arrogant man is man wants to say, I have to know everything about something before I can believe it. He'll never believe anything. So when we look at the righteousness, I mean, look at the essence of God, the focus in Hebrews 6 here is on the righteousness and justice of God. That God is just. You have problems in your spiritual life. You've failed. You've disappointed God. You've committed who knows what kinds of sins Nothing is irreversible. God's grace is always present if God permits. We read back in verse 3. So he says, For God is not unjust to forget. It is His justice. He is going to deal with you in light of what you have done. For God is not unjust to forget your work. And there's the Greek word epilanthano, which means basically to forget or not to remember or to ignore uh, something. So God is not unjust to forget. And it applies to the word adikios, which is that word unjust. Adikios comes from the root dikai, meaning righteous or just. We get dikaiosune, dikaiao, that whole word group for justice, righteousness, justification. Now, God remembers three things here in this passage. He remembers your work, first of all. So work's a good thing, but it's a kind of work. So always got to look at that qualification. Work, second thing he remembers, is your labor of love. Now, this is a, an interesting phrase here, an interesting phrase. See, you can look at, at this. It's, it's a genitive phrase. And it could have the idea of loving labor. Loving labor, where the genitive is describing the kind of labor. And I don't think, I don't think that's what it's doing here. Because then it, it, it seems redundant to work. Your work and your loving labor. 
and then uh, later on ministry. Then another way that this genitive could be understood is a labor resulting from love. I think that's what it's talking about here because Jesus gave the commandment or made the statement that the new commandment for the church age is that, that we should love other believers as Christ loved us. So this is a labor that is motivated by love for God first and foremost. And as we develop that love for God, then we mature in our love for people. So we have personal love for God and then impersonal or unconditional love for all mankind. So it's a labor resulting from love. And this leads to uh, ministry in the congregation. Ministry in the congregation. And that word, it's translated ministry, is the Greek word diakoneo. That's the verb diakonos is a noun uh, which relates to service. It indicates someone who is functioning in a capacity of helping others to perform duties, assisting them. And it refers to people in the body of Christ who are carrying out special duties in the body of Christ. For example, those who teach the word, those who are in offices, we call them deacons today, who are carrying out various responsibilities within uh, the local church. So to understand this, we have to understand how these three things work together. So that leads us to the doctrine of work. So we'll start off looking at the basic word here. First point, the word is ergon. It's a neutral word. It simply means work, performance, the result or the object of employment, uh, making something or working it. It's applied to labor, business, employment, anything to be done. It's work. It is, in many cases, meritorious, but not all cases. The word for work can mean that which is good. In other words, that which has eternal value, that which has uh, spiritual significance and results in the glory of God. So it's neither sinful nor righteous in and of itself. Now, second point here. My points got changed around here somehow. Okay, let me skip ahead here. Here we go. First point. The Greek word for work is morally neutral. It has the idea of labor, production, and can refer to either the works of the flesh or the production of the Holy Spirit. Second, the word work can mean that which is good, that is, it has eternal value. Spiritual value results in the glory of God or that which has no eternal value or is sinful or self-righteous. So just seeing the word work there doesn't tell us whether it's necessarily good or bad. We have to look at qualifiers and look at the context. For example, Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your God who is in heaven. So there's a place for good works. This is divine good that brings glory to God, not self-glorification. Now there are also passages that talk about work as sin. For example, Luke 11:48. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds, that is the works of your fathers, your uh, previous generations among the Jews, because it was they, that is previous generations uh, of Jews, who killed them, the prophets, and so these were sinful deeds. Galatians 5.19 talks about the works or the deeds of the flesh. Still that same word, ergon. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, and so on. So works here describes sinful works. John 3.19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light for their, what? Their deeds were evil. So here you have evil works. You also have the term works modified by the genitive phrase law. By the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. Now the works of the law are moral or immoral? They're moral. The law is good. It's holy and righteous, Paul says in Romans 7. So you can do morality that is has no value. 
it's just good. It's just good. It's just moral. It's it, there's nothing wrong with it. It just has no spiritual significance. It's not going to get you saved. It's not going to get you anywhere because it's generated by the flesh. Uh, Matthew 23, uh, verse 5, talks about the religious works of the Pharisees. They were good people. They were the religious conservatives of their day. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men, so they have wrong motivation. They're, they're concerned about just religious activities, they had no, but they had no eternal value. And then we have works used of the spiritually positive things that are produced in a man's life. We have work in 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15 is actually used in different senses. Verse 13, each man's work, that's just his production, that's the totality of everything that you think, say, and do. Each man's work will become evident at the judgment seat of Christ, for the day will reveal it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test or evaluate the quality of each man's work. So twice in that passage it's used to refer to the totality of their production, both good and bad. Verse 14, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. Well, that's divine good. That's the work that's produced by the Holy Spirit in our lives that has ongoing value, so it's rewardable. But it's still work. It's laborious at times. Ministry can be laborious at times. If any man's work is burned up, this is the negative. This is the human good. This is, it could be sinful or it could just be human good. It just burns up. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. Now, one last verse related to, or one, a couple more passages related to works in the believer's life. 2 Corinthians 9 8 says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything. In other words, God has given you everything you need through His Word and through His Spirit. You may have an abundance for every good deed. So there's nothing wrong with doing good deeds if they're done in obedience to the Word of God and the power of God and the Holy Spirit because that's divine good. Ephesians 2.10. Remember Ephesians 2.8.9. Just before this says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You stop there and you think works aren't any good. But look at the next verse. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. See, our works didn't get us created in Christ Jesus. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, but we're created for a purpose, to perform divine good, walk by the Spirit, apply the Word of God to, for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastor-teachers for the equipping of the saints to do the work. See, the pastor is to equip the saints to work. What kind of work? Work of service. That's that same word we find in our passage in Hebrews 2.10, diakonia, for the building up of the body of Christ. So the pastor, through the teaching of doctrine, builds up and matures the body of Christ so that they can be engaged in ministry. And then one last verse here, Ephesians 5.11, don't produce in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but expose them. So once again, we go back to don't participate in unfruitful deeds, but participate in fruitful deeds. So all of these are connected together as in 1 Thessalonians 1.3, the same way we have in Hebrews uh, 5.10, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith. See, that sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? That work of faith and labor of love. It's work that comes from faith. Because we trust God, we're going to do what God says to do and serve others. And labor of love, because we're motivated by our personal love for God, we are going to labor in the ministry, whatever that ministry is that God has given each one of us. Not necessarily the ministry of the local church, because there are lots of different ways in which you utilize 
whatever gifts that the Lord has given you in different ways. And then the writer of Hebrews connects that to steadfastness of hope, that future focus, which is what we'll come back to talk about next time as we get into verses 11 and 12. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you that we can go through this passage and be stimulated and encouraged to recognize that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works and that we are to walk in them. Father, strengthen us by means of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.